Amen. Well, we are back in Colossians chapter 1. So if you are uh, so inclined to take your Bibles to turn there, if you don't have a Bible, we have a lot of them in the seats in front of us. And in those volumes, there's two different editions. It's going to be either page 924 or 983. Colossians chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 21 to 23 in particular. And you see the title of the message, Steadfast Hope in steadfast in the hope of the gospel steadfast in the hope of the gospel and even as we were singing i was just reflecting on uh, i know what's gone on in my own life this last week since we last gathered some of you weren't here last lord's day many of you were uh, but i thought about things going on in my own life um, good and pleasant things hard and difficult things uh, my own indwelling sin that i continue to fight and and just varieties of experiences and i'm sure the same is true for all of you and yet god in his kindness, in his wisdom, he gathers us together again. And there's a uniqueness to such times as he, the good shepherd, speaks to us and shepherds us and ministers to us through his word and through his spirit, even through our interactions with one another, all the things that we sing and pray, and uh, this is his design. So I just was struck by that again, the blessing of being able to gather as we do each Lord's Day. Well, in Colossians 1, uh, we are going to look, as I said, at verses 21 to 23. And if you were with us last week, we looked at verses 15 to 20, which encompass Paul's, really God's high and rich, Christ-exalting hymn that reveals the truth that all things are always about our Lord Jesus Christ. And in verses 15 to 20, we see there that Jesus Christ is always preeminent over all his creation, and he's always preeminent over his church. He is the supreme and the all-sufficient king. And what Paul reveals there, what God reveals through Paul in verses 15 to 20, then begs the question, well, how are we to respond to that? And that's what is addressed then in verses 21 to 23. This is how we're to respond to the supremacy and to the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me read verses 21 to 23, and then I'll lead us in prayer, and then we'll kind of dive into things. But let's hear God's powerful, eternal, and uh, life-giving words, starting in verse 21. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord, and let me lead us in prayer as we seek his help. Our Father, we thank you for your life-giving words and works in our Lord Jesus Christ. And as you have been pleased to proclaim your gospel to all creation under heaven, so you have brought us together now to hear from you and to respond to you. Father, I pray that you, by your Spirit, would empower me to faithfully preach your word 
And that you would give all of us very soft and repentant and believing hearts that we might walk steadfastly in the hope of the gospel. We pray all of this for your glory in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, many of you know, some of you don't, so I'll tell you that a little over two years ago, I was diagnosed with prostate cancer. And there was, of course, a process of tests that I went through, some of them kind of invasive, that brought about the clarity and the truth of that diagnosis. And at the time, I had zero physical symptoms of having cancer. I felt completely healthy. I felt completely fine. But my my doctors told me that on the basis of these tests, they conclusively revealed the fact that I had prostate cancer. Now at that point, I was faced with a decision. I was faced with a choice. Namely, how would I respond to what my doctors are telling me the tests reveal? Uh, I could choose to ignore my doctors and just kind of continue on, or I could choose to take them seriously and follow my doctor's prescriptions for healing. Well, of course, I chose to follow what the doctors prescribed. I ended up having surgery, and today I'm fine, as far as I know. Uh, There's no sign of cancer or anything, and I'm very, very grateful for that. But my point in sharing that story is this. It's one thing to know the truth, but the real question becomes, how do we respond to the truth? It's one thing to know the truth, but the bigger question is how do we respond to the truth? And as I shared in verses 15 to 20, Paul has just declared the truths of the eternal supremacy and sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ over all that he has created in the heavens and on the earth and over his church as well. And the question becomes how do we respond? How do we respond? And the answer, as I said, is in verses 21 to 23. And so with what Paul says here in this passage, he's he's applying the truths of verses 15 to 20. And the big idea, the main truth of what we see, it's sort of embedded in the title there, is this. It's simply be steadfast in the hope of the gospel. Be steadfast in the hope of the gospel. That's the main point of verses 21 to 23. And in connection with what he said in verses 15 to 20, we could say it this way, because all things are always about the Lord Jesus Christ, therefore be steadfast in the hope of the gospel. Be steadfast in the hope of the gospel. Now in verses 21 to 23, what Paul does is he's urgently pleading for believers to be steadfast in the hope of the gospel by calling us to remember three realities. And you'll see them unfold. There's one in verse 21, there's a second reality in verse 22, and there's a third reality in verse 23. And he wants us to remember these realities. Let me just identify them, and then we'll look at them in a little bit more detail. Uh, The first reality, verse 21, is to remember your hopeless condition. To remember your hopeless condition. And then second of all, verse 22, to remember your hope-filled reconciliation. To remember your hope-filled reconciliation. 
And then third, in verse 23, to remember your hope-preserving obligation. Your hope-preserving obligation. So those are the three realities. Your hopeless condition, your hope-filled reconciliation, and your hope-preserving obligation. And it really forces the question for every single one of us, even as we heard from Psalm 62 and as Pastor Tim alluded to in his prayer, it begs the question for all of us, where is our hope? Where is our hope? Well, just before we get into verses 21 to 23, I want to just make three really, really quick observations about what we see here. And these are just things to note. Um, First of all, this exhortation from Paul, all of verses 21 to 23, in the original Greek, it is one long sentence. And this is very common, very typical of Paul's style, but it's all one long sentence in the original Greek. A second thing I'd want you to just note at the outset is that the work of God in Christ in in reconciling sinners to himself, as Paul speaks of that in verse 22, and he's echoing what he had previously said in verse 20, that work of reconciliation is really central not only to this entire section that we're looking at, but it's central to Paul's entire letter, and it really is central to the entire story of Scripture of God reconciling sinners to himself in Christ. So it's central in this passage, it's central in the letter, it's central to all of Scripture. And then just a third brief observation I want to make is with what Paul says here in verses 21 to 23, he's really continuing a theme that he's not only alluded to in verses 15 to 20, but even going back to verses 13 and 14 in chapter 1, uh, this theme of the fact that believers have been transferred into a new kingdom, have been transferred into God's kingdom. So look at what he says there in verses 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so with what he goes on to say now about reconciliation and our need to continually be steadfast in the hope of the gospel in Christ, it all revolves around this fact that for believers, God has brought us into his kingdom. He's transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness, of Satan, and of this world, and into his own kingdom. So all of those things are just a few preliminary notes and observations, but let's, let's get into these three realities now in a little bit more detail, okay? So verse 21, here's the first reality, remember your hopeless condition. And so he says in verse 21, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Now Paul is clearly speaking to believers here. He's speaking to those who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's identified that at the beginning of the letter. He said other things about them. And so he's wanting to remind them now here of their former hopeless condition. And so he's describing this condition, and really this is the condition of every unbeliever. It's the condition of every human being on the planet earth outside of faith in Jesus Christ. And you'll see that this hopeless condition is marked by three characteristics. First, Paul says they were alienated. They were alienated. And this term means 
to be alienated. It means to be estranged and excluded. It means to be completely separated from someone. And the someone here from whom all human beings are alienated is God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, the Spirit as well. The whole context of Colossians chapter 1 informs that. And so Paul is speaking about the condition of unbelievers as being alienated from God. Paul uses this same uh, term in a parallel passage over in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18, and referring to unbelievers, he says there in Ephesians 4, verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. And this sense of alienation is the sad and hopeless condition of every unbeliever being alienated, excluded, cut off from their creator, alienated from the very love and light and life for which they were created. One of the images that comes to my mind of such alienation is like a fish out of water. When a fish is out of water, completely out of water, they are alienated from the very realm, the very environment that they were created to exist in. And when we are alienated from God, we are alienated from from fellowship with him, his love, his light, his life, the very one in whom we were created, the environment, if you will, that we were created to exist in, in which we were created to thrive. And so when a fish is out of water, rather than flourishing, what do they do? They flop around and they flounder. And that's a pretty graphic picture of what life alienated from God is like. Just flopping around and floundering from one thing to the next, one vain hope to the next, hoping to find life, hoping to find meaning, hoping to find significance. But if you're alienated from God, you'll never find it because you're like a fish out of water. The only thing, the only environment in which a fish thrives is water. And the only environment in which we who were created by God thrive is in right fellowship with God. So alienation is the first characteristic of this hopeless condition. Well, then second of all, Paul goes on to describe this hopeless condition as being hostile in mind, hostile in mind. And he's speaking here of the mental, really the whole heart disposition of unbelievers. They are hostile enemies of God. And what this means using this term is it's, it's bringing out the truth that unbelievers are literally at war with God. In their minds, unbelievers hate and rebel against the good, loving, and righteous authority of God in their lives. You might even be thinking, perhaps you are still an unbeliever. Perhaps you know others who are unbelievers and you're thinking, well, they don't openly hate God. Well, here's the question. Do they love him as he has commanded with their heart and soul and mind and strength? Are they seeking to know him and to worship him and to please him and to honor him and to thank him? Is that what we're doing? If we're not, if we don't love him in that way, then we hate him. And that's the sense of hostility in mind. Rather, in their minds, they're enemies against him. They're at war with him. 
Now, Paul also describes this sense of hostility in mind using other terms in Romans chapter 1, verse 21. Listen to what he says of such unbelievers. He says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. The same terms that describe the reality of being alienated and hostile in mind at war with God. Whatever else I may do, I am not going to bow the knee to my creator. That's the sense of hostility and rebellion and hatred against God. Well, that leads to the third characteristic that Paul goes on to speak of in verse 21. He describes hopeless unbelievers as doing evil deeds, doing evil deeds. And you notice the sequence of what Paul is saying here. It's important to see this. An unbeliever's condition of being alienated from God involves a hostility of mind against God, which is then manifested, it's then demonstrated through doing evil deeds. And any evil deeds are those deeds that are born out of being alienated from God and hostile in mind against him, even if they are self-righteous deeds and look good and nice on the outside. It's ultimately idolatry. You say, well, what are these evil deeds? What might they look like? Well, if you slip over to chapter 3 in Colossians, Paul speaks to this in some detail. So look at what he says in verses 5 through 9 of Colossians 3. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And in these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. There's a lot of evil deeds that he's speaking of there, and certainly he's not speaking of them exhaustively. There are other expressions of evil deeds. And we recognize as well that these evil deeds will vary in type and in degree among unbelievers, but it's important to note that such evil deeds are the fruit of alienation and hostility, rebellion against God. And so again, what we see here is that Paul is describing the hopeless condition of every unbeliever. And in so doing, he's describing the nature of sin. He's describing the nature of sinful humanity. And friend, I would say that this is the true condition of every human being outside of Jesus Christ. And if you are outside of faith in Jesus Christ, friend, this is describing you. And it's describing me before God brought me to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It describes all of us. It describes all of us. It helps us understand that contrary to popular ways of thinking, we as human beings, we are not basically good people who just need the right environment and who just need the right education and who just need the right encouragement so that we can let our full goodness just shine forth. No, we're not basically good people. We are basically alienated. We are basically hostile in mind. We are basically given over to evil deeds in various ways. 
We're in rebellion against God. We're at war with God. That is our condition. Listen to how Paul describes this elsewhere in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. He says this, you were, and he's referring to believers in their former hopeless condition here. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, he says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, given all of this, and then that's a more extended version of what Paul says here in verse 21 of Colossians 1, we ask the question, well, why is Paul reminding the Colossian believers of their former hopeless condition? Why go back and spend any time considering that? Well, his intent is to magnify all the more what God has done in reconciling them to himself through Jesus. And all of this as a means of spurring on and motivating their faith to remain steadfast in the hope of the gospel. So he wants us, God wants us to never forget our hopeless condition outside of Christ so that the magnitude of what he did in reconciling us will be all the more real and, and glorious to us in a way that would spur on our faith. And so this leads to the second reality then that Paul wants to remind believers of in verse 22. It's this, remember your hope-filled reconciliation. Remember your former hopeless condition, but now remember your hope-filled reconciliation. And so verse 22, he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And beloved, do you see that this is beyond amazing and incredible and overwhelming? This is the hope of the gospel. This is the hope of the good news. That though we were in a hopeless and in a helpless condition of being alienated from God with our hostility and our rebellion and our evil deeds, and though we rightly deserved nothing but God's wrath and his justice and eternal judgment, though that was true of all of us, he has reconciled us to himself. He's reconciled us to himself. And that's why, as I said earlier, God's work of reconciliation is the central reality of this whole passage. And Paul has just spoken of this in verse 20. If you look there, he says, And through him, Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, this sense of reconciliation, we need to just chew on this reality for a little bit. This sense of reconciliation, it has to do with the full and complete restoration of a relationship that has been broken, that has been destroyed, a relationship in which alienation has occurred. And of course, in the context, this all has to do with human beings' relationship with our Creator, with the true and living God. And the means of this restoration is from God Himself. 
But this sense of reconciliation means it's the removal of all hostility. And it's the restoration of peace. It means that the war between us and God is over. And as we heard already back in verses 13 and 14, in Christ, God has delivered us from darkness. He's transferred us into the kingdom of his son. He's redeemed us from bondage and he's forgiven us all of our sins. And all of this is what he has done in reconciling us. He's restored us to a right relationship with him. Again, we were like fish out of water. He's put us back in the water of his love and of his light and of his life, the environment in which we were created to dwell. And he's restored us. And this is where we're to live. And this is where we're to thrive. This is where we're to flourish. Now, just notice in verse 22, there's two features of this reconciliation that Paul speaks of. I'll just touch on these But the first feature is he speaks of the means of reconciliation. How did this happen? He says he's reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death. And this is indicating that this reconciliation is all of God's initiative. It's all of his provision. And it's through the gift. It's by the means of his own eternal son. He gave his own eternal son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was incarnated in the miracle of uh, of the incarnation. And he lived a perfectly righteous life and he died a substitutionary death. And again, Paul's reinforcing what he's already said in verse 20, that through him, Christ, God reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And again, the whole story of the Bible is about God's initiative and God's provision through the Lord Jesus Christ to reconcile guilty sinners to himself. Guilty, helpless, hopeless sinners that God has reconciled. That's the means. It's through Christ, through his body of flesh by his death. But then second of all, notice what he goes on to say about the goal of this reconciliation. That's the last part of verse 22. He says, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And Paul is here speaking about our standing before God in the final judgment and indicating that God's goal in reconciling people in Jesus is to make us more like Jesus. We're to be holy, which means to be cleansed from sin and separated unto God. We're to be blameless, which means we're to be faultless and without blemish. And we're to be above reproach, which means that we're to be free from sin without any guilt or accusation at all. Now, for believers, you see, this is our status positionally before God that he renders us holy and, and, and separated, blameless and without reproach, above reproach. That's our position positionally, our status positionally, but he aims to transform us actually to become more and more like Jesus. And that, of course, will be complete when we are glorified in his presence in heaven. But again, in all of this, we see both the means and the goal. This is all of God's work. 
to redeem, to reconcile, and to make us what we were intended to be in how he originally created us. I want to point you to a couple of other passages where Paul speaks in even more detail about this work of God in reconciling sinners to himself. And you might just make note of these. You're welcome, of course, to to turn to them, but make note and just listen to these things. One of them is in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. Romans 5, verses 6 through 11. And listen to what Paul says regarding these truths. He says, verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He goes on, verse 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And then verse 10, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And more than that, we also rejoice through, uh, in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation, the restoration of a right relationship with God through Christ. So that's Romans 5. Well, another passage is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5 verses 18 through 21. Listen to what Paul says here. He says, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a truth. What a glory. And you see what hope we have. And for we who have been reconciled to God through Christ, he now calls us to be ambassadors of Christ in proclaiming this message of reconciliation to others so they can know this hope as well. We who have been brought to peace with God, we now become messengers of his peacemaking mission. We become peacemakers proclaiming the gospel of peace to those who are yet alienated and at war with God. And so, friends, are you reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ? If you're not, God's word to you this morning is be reconciled. Be reconciled. Has your alienation from God ended? Is your war with God over? Have you repented from your hostility and rebellion against him, trusting only in the person and in the saving work of Jesus Christ? Have you come to know peace with God rather than trouble and fear and guilt and condemnation and ultimately hopelessness and despair? If you've never come to faith in Christ, call out to him even now in your heart, Cry out to him, Lord, please save me. I want to be reconciled. I know I've been alienated. I know I'm hostile in mind. I know I've done evil deeds. Oh, God, reconcile me. Let me trust Christ. Help me to trust Christ. You can call out to him now. 
And friend, he'll save you. He'll reconcile to you. I think one of the most beautiful pictures in Scripture of, uh, of God's heart to reconcile, of God's heart to restore, of God's heart to bring blessing where there has been cursing is in the story that Jesus tells that we often refer to as the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. And in Luke chapter 15, this story is really not so much about the prodigal son who rebels against the father and who goes far away from the father. The story is ultimately not about him. It's about the father. It's about the absolutely uncontrollable, inconceivable, irrational compassion and mercy and grace of the father. And I won't read the whole story, but the point of Jesus telling this is in order to show how eager God is to forgive and to restore and to reconcile with those who would repent. And you may be familiar with the basic contours of the story. This one son wants his inheritance from the father. He doesn't want the father. He only wants what the father can give. And then he alienates himself from his father by going to a far distant country. He wants to be as far away from the father as he can. What is he? He's alienating himself. He's hostile in mind. And then he's doing all kinds of evil deeds. He's spending all the money on just the fulfillment of all of his own pleasures. And he's living a life of total unbridled hedonism. Well, eventually, he bears with the consequences of his rebellion. And he comes to a point where he's literally eating the food that pigs are eating. And it's at that point in the story, as Jesus tells us, that he comes to his senses. And so verse 17 of Luke 15, when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. And then we hear the expression of his repentance. He says in verse 18, I'll arise and I'll go to my father. I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as you would one of your hired servants. And then here's the real point of the story. Verse 20, he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. It's an amazing admission of his guilt and of, of his heart to repent. I've rejected you. I don't deserve to even be called your son, he says. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate for this. My son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Now there's more that goes on in the story. There's more that Jesus has to instruct through that. But the high point of what he is revealing is the overflowing compassion of the father to be restored to a son who's rebelled against him. You see, that's the work of reconciliation. And our heavenly father gave his own eternal son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be the means, to be the price of securing that reconciliation. And so these are the first two realities that Paul calls believers to remember. First, remember your hopeless condition, as he speaks of in verse 21. Second, remember your hope-filled reconciliation, the wonder, the riches of what has transpired with that. 
And then this leads third to what he has to say in verse 23. Remember your hope-preserving obligation. Remember your hope-preserving obligation. Here it is, verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. What is that hope of the gospel? It's reconciliation with the Father through the Son. That's the hope of the gospel. He says, not shifting from that hope, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So here's the force of what Paul is saying here. It's this. The faith that reconciles and saves is the faith that perseveres. The faith that reconciles and saves is the faith that perseveres. And that's why he's making clear that believers, we are obligated, as he says there, to continue in the faith. And this is important to note and very important to understand. Paul is making a conditional statement. He begins verse 23 by saying, if, if indicating that the obligation of persevering faith, which he describes as stable and steadfast and not shifting from the hope of the gospel, the obligation of this persevering persevering faith, it is the condition upon which God accomplishes his goal of reconciliation, as he's just spoken of in verse 22. And so what Paul is saying is that standing before God, holy, blameless, and above reproach in final judgment is ultimately conditioned upon the necessity of continuing faith in Jesus Christ, who is the one through his life and death and resurrection that we are enabled to stand such a way, in such a way before God. Now, with what Paul says, he's referring to persevering faith. If you'll notice there in verse 23, he says, continue in the faith. There's a definite article there, and that's very significant because when he says continue in the faith, he's not talking about our own subjective believing, but rather what the object of that belief is, namely the faith. And he's referring to the truth and the hope of the gospel of Jesus that's revealed in God's word, the body of faith. And Paul uses that phrase many other places throughout his letters. The redemption and the reconciliation that are found only in Jesus Christ. To be steadfast in the faith, in the truth, in all that God has revealed of his reconciling work in Jesus Christ. Now, of course, we can see that the descriptive language that Paul then uses of stable and steadfast and not shifting, that clearly has the imagery of that which is firm and persevering and immovable despite all that might attack and oppose such faith. So in other words, Paul's calling for the obligation of hope-preserving faith, that even within all that would oppose it, All the trials, all the attacks of Satan, all the attacks of the world, all of our own indwelling sin, that amidst all that would oppose such faith, we strive by his grace to tenaciously be fixed and focused on the Lord Jesus Christ as revealed in Scripture. The one, as Paul has just said in verses 15 to 20, is is the one who is eternally sovereign and supreme and who rules creation, and the one who is the all-sufficient head of the church, 
to find our hope in him, our confidence in him. As Psalm 62 declares, to have that resolve that says, I'm going to trust only in you and look only to you, Lord Jesus. Now we know as we live in Northern California, there's all kinds of seismic activity. I'm sure many of you have experienced the terror of an earthquake. I've experienced some down in Southern California. I felt others here one time of all places. I was back in Oklahoma a number of years ago visiting friends and there was an earthquake because there's a big uh, uh, New Madrid fault that runs through that part of the country as well. And anyways, we understand we live in a seismically active area. And because of that, Through the years, engineers and architects and others have learned to design buildings that are intended to withstand such a massive earthquake. In other words, buildings that are stable and steadfast and they won't shift and they won't crumble, hopefully, the hope is, of course, when an earthquake hits. And in an infinitely greater way, in Christ in all that God has given us in reconciling us to himself in Christ, in the hope of the gospel. He has given that which is absolutely, infinitely, eternally sufficient to keep us stable and steadfast. And that's why Paul is burdened for us to not shift away from the hope of the gospel, even as we face all kinds of dangers in this world just like fish in the water can face all kinds of dangers. Because Satan is always trying to bait us, isn't he, with all kinds of fleshly enticements and fine-sounding arguments and anything and everything that would pull us away, that would shift us away from our hope and from faith in Christ. And so Paul is calling for believers to be steadfast in hope and to remember our hope-preserving obligation to continue to believe and to plead for God's help to keep believing. This is why earlier in chapter 1, verses 9 to 12, Paul tells the believers how he's praying for them because he wants them to grow and be strong and to persevere in the power of God with all patience and with all joy, even in the midst of difficulties. And so this is the hope of the gospel. And what this tells us, beloved, is that faith and repentance are not just one-time actions for a believer, but rather faith and repentance is a continual, growing, moment-by-moment, lifelong focus of walking with the Father through the Son in the Spirit. It's an ongoing matter of, of trusting, of seeking, of depending And this is why such means that God has provided as his word and as prayer are things that we should continually be pouring ourselves into, pouring ourselves also into the life and worship of a local church such as this as part of God's means for helping our faith to be strengthened so that we would be steadfast in the hope of the gospel. And so, beloved, this is the call. This is the response to the truth and the reality of who God is in Jesus Christ the one who's supreme and the one who is all-sufficient, is that we are to be steadfast in the hope of the gospel. To always remember our hopeless condition outside of Christ, to always remember our hope-filled reconciliation in Christ, and then to always remember our hope-preserving obligation. And here's the great thing about the obligation to believe. It's applicable everywhere all the time for all of us. 
whatever situation you're in, whatever trials you may be facing, whatever burdens, whatever needs, whatever sin, whatever anything, God's primary fundamental call is believe. Believe and follow Christ and trust the reconciliation he's given. Don't shift away from the hope of the gospel, from the hope of life in Christ. Keep looking to Jesus. Keep looking to Jesus again and again and again.